0: We're going through a sermon series on the spiritual disciplines, on spiritual formation. And if you were paying attention as we read through the liturgy, the readings were really geared towards painting this picture of a hospitable God, of a God who is an extravagant host, who is always bringing people, inviting people into his home to feed and clothe and love on them, to be a father to the fatherless, to be a friend to the lonely, and that he especially welcomes and goes out and seeks those who are outsiders, those who wouldn't think of themselves as having a place at his table. And this morning, we're going to read a gospel uh, passage that draws that out a little bit further, and then I'll make some comments. This is our gospel reading from Luke 14. When he noticed how the guest picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to the better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed." Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, "'Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God.' Jesus replied, "'A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, "'Come, for everything is now ready.'" But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, on this day that we celebrate as a nation, Mother's Day, we pray that you would be especially present to those who are mothers, to those who are carrying a child, to those who want to have children, to those who are, are perhaps estranged from their child. Father, being a mother is such a difficult and challenging task. It's full of joys, but also great difficulties. Father, I pray that you would be the comfort in those times of difficulty, and I pray that you would that mothers would see you in those times of joy and Father, I pray that you would be with the moms here at intown that they would be free from comparison, free from trying to have the perfect child or be the perfect mom and do everything correctly, but father, let them rest in you, let them receive strength in you, let them receive regard from you in what is such. Uh, often a thankless role. And Lord, we pray you would be with all of us as we seek to uh, learn about being people who are hospitable because you have been hospitable to us. We pray that you would guide us as we think about this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Amen. One of the difficulties in thinking and talking about hospitality is that our understanding of hospitality, our definition of hospitality is so wimpy. It's so paltry. What do you think of when you think of hospitality? I generally think of laying out a a nice meal. I think of putting on mood music and having the right lighting and making all the guests comfortable and so forth. It's entertaining. And that's an aspect of hospitality for sure. But the Word for hospitality in Jesus' day, the idea was much stronger. It was much more demanding. The word hospitality doesn't show up in our text this morning, but it's all over the New Testament, which takes its cues from Jesus' life and his teaching. The Greek word hospitality comes from the combination of two words, philo and xenia. If you think about what we use for in our day and age, for fear of foreigners, xenophobia, This is its opposite, phyloxenia. It is love of strangers. It's love of foreigners. It's actually putting your your interest at stake to protect and care for an alien. In Jesus' day, it meant graciously receiving an alienated person into one's land or home or community and providing directly for that person's needs, no questions asked. Now, this deeper understanding of hospitality doesn't exist so much in the modern West, but it does still exist in places around the world. In 2005, the story is told of four Navy SEALs in the the movie and the book, Lone Survivor. And they were on a mission in Afghanistan searching for this Al-Qaeda terrorist who was held up uh, hiding in a Taliban stronghold. And they were engaged in this intense firefight where three Navy SEALs were killed, and the fourth, Marcus Luttrell, was wounded and severely injured. And they spent days fighting off these assassins, and then he basically crawled, critically injured, and was taken in um, by this Pashtun tribe. And the tribe, not knowing him, not knowing his motives, not being able to even really communicate with him, took him in, no questions asked. They took him into the village where Marcos Luttrell writes, the law of hospitality was considered strictly non-negotiable. They were committed to defend me against the Taliban until there was no one left alive. Jesus has been invited to a dinner party. And it's at the home of a very respectable, what Luke calls the arch-Pharisee. He's a religious big shot. He's well known. He's probably very wealthy. And they've come in to have the party at his very big house. And the society that Jesus lived in wasn't a meritocracy, it wasn't a democracy, but it was very class stratified. It was this very hierarchical society. And to move up, you had to know someone. To move up, you had to exchange favors with someone above you that could then enhance your social standing. Well, how did you develop these friendships? How did you develop these alliances and extend favors and develop these kinds of power networks? It was through entertaining. It was through a version of hospitality. It was through food and parties. You brought people into your home who could then reciprocate, and there was quid pro quo. You brought them in, and then they brought you in, and you had this network, and people moved up the social ladder in that way. So all of these upper crust sorts, All of these movers and shakers, all of these religious big shots and the elites are there at this party. And in this this setting, Jesus says, when you give a banquet, don't invite the wealthy, don't invite your friends, don't invite your family, but invite who? Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Jesus steps into this patronage system and says, All of you religious types, all of you God-fearing people, you don't understand the kingdom. You don't understand biblical hospitality. You don't understand what God is doing in the world. You are seeking blessing by glad-handing and social politics, but if you understand God's kingdom, you'd be inviting very different people into your mix, people who are in need of your generosity and who can't pay you back. So it goes quiet. This upstart rabbi has just basically defied every social convention and slapped the host in the face, in a sense. Because he's saying, look around at all these people that you've invited. This is not God's kingdom. And so someone sitting next to him says to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat in the feast in the kingdom of God. This isn't in any way an affirmation. This is trying to change the subject, anything to break the awkward silence. This popular rabbi has just taken a swing at one of the most cherished social practices among the elite and religious class. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. It's a very awkward moment, but it's probably more true than he realized. Because not only are we told here that life with God, life in God's kingdom, is like a party, but also that we're going to be surprised by who's on the guest list. Everyone is invited, but not everyone will come. But Jesus isn't done. He tells them a second parable, a parable about a great dinner. And this great dinner, this great feast, represents what life in the kingdom is like is that how you think about christianity if you're inspecting christianity if you're investigating if you're in it is that your experience is that your idea is that what you're looking for that life in the kingdom life with jesus is to meant to be a celebration it's meant to be a party it's meant to be delightful is that your idea well, he tells him the second parable he says a respectable person like this host throws a party and invites other respectable people, other people in the upper crust. But they don't come. They make excuses. Verse 17, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. One guy says, well, I bought a field, and I must go see it. So this real estate genius is buying things sight unseen, and he has to go out and see the field that he's already bought. But why now? Why does he have to go right now? Why can't he go to the party? Another speculator says, I bought five yoke of oxen. That's a lot. To be wealthy in that culture, you'd probably own one or two. This person has five. So he's bought his third lake house, and he has to travel out to make sure it's clean so he can't come to the party. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. What's he, grounded? Grounded? Has he been out partying too much lately? And so the wife has said, buddy, you can't go out anymore. You've got to stay home. Well, that's not how it worked back then. What Jesus is saying is that all of these excuses are super lame. They're the kind of excuses that if someone gave you for not coming to your party, you would feel hurt. You would think and realize, well, this relationship isn't what I thought it would thought it was. When fellow respectable people reject the invitation, the host then says, Go out into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Go to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Go out and compel the poor, the lame, the blind, and the crippled. You see, the religious, the upper crust, the the powerful, get an invitation, and they say, well, of course I would get an invitation. Of course I'm invited. I'm invited to everything, so I need to weigh my options. Maybe I have something more important to do. The religious say, of course I would get an invitation. The outcasts, those who are marginalized, those who are social lepers, say, me? Really? You're inviting me to your party? I can't believe it. They have to be compelled to come because they don't get invitations like this. They don't get invited to parties at the upper crust. Me? Really? You see, in this first century Jewish world, it would have been expected that the upright, the well-thought-of, the morally respectable people, that they were the ones who had already received God's blessing. Because of their status, they expected to get invited the upright, the morally respectable people would be invited, of course, to dine at God's table. But you see, the guest list also includes the marginal, the weak, the disabled, nobodies, people who are social outcasts. And the people in the upper crust, the religious elites, they don't want to be seen in a party sharing table fellowship with those kind of people. No one who had the so-called right to be at the party came And none of the people who came had a so-called right to be there. You see, his table is now full of people who the good, respectable people not only wouldn't invite, but would be scandalized to sit next to at a party. Because what dinners conveyed, sharing the table conveyed social solidarity and equality. And so heaven forbid, this arch-Pharisee had to sit down next to someone who was blind or crippled. Because, what does that say about them and their status and their religiosity and their piety? Jesus doesn't say to these people, you know, your parties should have a bit more diversity. He goes far more beyond that. He's not just saying, you know, you ought to diverse things up. You'll have a much better time if you have different people here. What he's saying is, you don't get the kingdom, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand God as host. You don't understand that God is a hospitable God that goes out into the byways to find the lame, the crippled, those who have no status, those who have no expectation of being invited to God's feast and saying, please come. In fact, compelling them to come. The kingdom of God is a party and it's going to be full of people that you don't expect to be there. And instead of being amazed at them getting in, shouldn't we really be amazed that we got in? Shouldn't our statement, our surprise be me? Really? I get to come to the party? I get to dine at God's dinner table? Instead of being amazed at others getting in, we should be amazed that we get in. Now think about your own life. Think about your your childhood, your time in school. Were you able to sit where you wanted? Did you get to sit at the cool kids' table? Were you invited to all the right parties? And then later, did you get into the, the school that you wanted? Did you get the educational credentials that you wanted? Did you acquire the relationship that you desired? Well, if our basic answer is yes, that all of these things that, that we want, we've gotten we probably now live out of this narrative of achievement, that you didn't get these things for free, that it wasn't an act of charity, but these people, these institutions recognized your innate talents, they recognized your gifts, they recognized your fitness to be in the crowd, and they invited you in. It wasn't free. But if no, if you're one of those who didn't get invited to the parties, you didn't sit at the cool kids table, Maybe you're living now out of this narrative of deprivation, of fear, of shame. You didn't get in, you didn't have the membership, you didn't sit at the right tables, and so you're moving through life trying to prove all of those people who rejected you wrong. What's the difference between these two narratives? Well, one leads to pride and self-importance, the narrative of achievement, And the other two, insecurity and fear, the narrative of deprivation. But the underlying circumstances of what's going on in the heart are exactly the same. We want the best seats in the house, and we don't want them to be free. We want to be given the best seats of the house because we deserve them. Because of our innate talent, genius, beauty, whatever. We want the best seats in the house because we deserve it. You want an invitation to Jesus' party based upon your belonging, not your lostness. You want an invitation to Jesus' party because of your value to the kingdom, not because of your need. But Jesus says to all of us, come, everything is prepared. Everything is already ready for you to be here. You see, it's a relationship. Being in the kingdom is a relationship with God, not based upon Uh, reciprocity, but it's based upon grace. Very unlike these parties that Jesus is at now. Everything is based upon reciprocation, not upon grace. Everything is based upon everyone being equally good instead of equally needful and needy. You see, you belong at the party not because of your qualifications, but because you got the invite. That's what makes you qualified. You see, Jesus has already made everything ready. Everything's already prepared. All you have to do is show up. You're welcome. You're invited. You belong there. But see, you have to give up both your pride and your arrogance as well as your insecurity and fear. And when you do so, then you get to come to the infinite feast. And when you go there, having given up those things, you no longer look around and say, Oh, my word. That person's here. Wow, she got in? But you think, I can't believe I get to sit here and feast with these people. I can't believe I get to sit here and feast with Jesus forever. Jesus says, invite those who can't pay you back. And this is where we get into, hopefully, some application for hospitality. Invite those who can't pay you back and you will be blessed. And so, in so doing... You're being like God the host who is inviting people to his feast who can't pay him back, who haven't earned a seat, but he gives a seat freely. And in the same way, we open our homes, we open our lives, we open our church to people who don't deserve a place, but we give it, we grant it because we who didn't deserve a place were granted a seat by God. The master of the house goes out into the street to invite the poor, the outcast, the lame. And isn't Jesus telling us that the closer that we are to cultural power, the closer we are to influence, the more moral, the more that we've achieved, the more difficult it is to believe that everyone is invited and everyone is welcome. For Jesus, over and over in the Gospels, we see this at mealtimes where he shares meals, he shows social solidarity with people like this that the kingdom tends to flow towards those who are far from the center those who are immoral those who don't have social standing those who don't have religious status it's those that seem somewhat some reason to get the gospel more quickly and more readily for these people there's a surprise of belonging not an expectation And when you realize that the meal really is free, then you won't be surprised to find social lepers there. When you realize that the meal really is full of grace and free, you won't be put off to share the meal with radical failures and moral outcasts. Instead, you will count yourself as one and the same. Because now, they're your kind of people. When you show Hospitality. When you protect a stranger, you get a taste of Jesus's joy in preparing a meal for you. In you who were once an alien, you who once were an outcast, you who once were a stranger, now have been invited to sit at the head of the table and feast with Jesus forever. When you then turn around and do that, you get a taste of his joy in doing it for you. You are mimicking Jesus. And friends, that's spiritual formation. It is learning to live more in line with the way that Jesus lived. And you do so by practicing the hospitality that Jesus showed. You get a taste of Jesus' joy in preparing and serving an infinite feast for everyone who doesn't deserve it and for everyone who can't afford it. In loving a stranger, you see, you get to see some of your strangerness. You get to see that you didn't deserve a seat that you weren't fit for the king but he brought you in anyway by grace the movie babettes <coughs> excuse me babettes feast tells the story of this small puritanical ascetic town on the danish coast in the mid 1800s and this town and this sect was founded by this pastor who had two daughters one was named matina named after martin luther and the other Philippa, named after his understudy, Philip Melanchthon. So you can see this was a very serious family, very serious sect. These two sisters have devoted their lives to continuing the work of their father after he passed on, giving up careers, giving up romantic loves, giving up marriage in order to keep this community going. And decades after the death of their father, this French chef named Babette flees the violence of Paris and takes refuge in their village. And Babette is given lodging in the home of these two sisters in exchange for cooking them meals and basically being their their housekeeper. And they're ignorant of the fact that she was a chef in Paris and she has exquisite culinary gifts. And for 14 years, Babette graciously serves these two sisters in their ever-diminishing flock. And she accepts this task of preparing meals for the community's weekly services, and she forms relationships in the community and is loved by the sisters and loved by the community. But she's only allowed to make the blandest of foods, boiled fish and a staple known as ale bread. And the the blandness of the food is a reflection of this community. Over the years, however, the small community becomes engulfed in bitterness and jealousy and guilt and people holding grudges against each other, and they harbor resentments that just seem to fester and grow. But one day, Babette receives word that she has inherited this enormous amount of money. And what does she do with it? Wouldn't you think she would leave the place and build her own house and have her own cook, have her own housekeeper? But instead, she she decides to prepare an extravagant French meal for the congregation on the 100th birthday of the deceased pastor. The sisters are reluctant, but Babette begs them to allow her this one privilege. Many of the foods are, are too exquisite, even sinful in the eyes of this sensually challenged congregation, and they fear for their own spiritual well-being. But not wishing to hurt Babette's feelings or reject her good intentions, they agree among themselves to eat the meal but they determine not to allow themselves to enjoy it. The food may pass their lips, but their spirits will be elsewhere. But then the food starts arriving. Imported quail, wine, champagne, truffles, all of the great cuisine from, France, from Paris. And the congregation gathered around the banquet table grad- gradually becomes aware that they are being treated to something extraordinary. Extraordinary. In spite of their pious disclaimers, the gifts start to experience joy and they start to experience communion with one another. They start to see the person that has been alienated by some wrong that's been inflicted on them, they now see them as one and the same. They now extend table fellowship to those people that they've had bitter competition with. Babette's incredible gift, her sacrificial hospitality, begins to break down walls of hostility. They're able to extend acceptance to one another and begin to forgive each other. Through their love of Babette and the sacrifice that she makes to put on this feast, they are able to be reconciled as a community. And as the film draws to a close, the villagers file out of the house rejoicing and they join hands and form a circle as they sing a hymn of praise together. They nod and they smile together, affirming each other and the world that God has allowed them to enjoy. They have experienced spontaneous, sacrificial, extravagant love, and they can't help but respond in the same way. They can't help but respond from receiving this extravagant gift to then giving an extravagant gift to one another, that is forgiveness and acceptance and love and hospitality. Friends, as a church, as individuals, you're called, I'm called to show hospitality. And the reason and the only way to maintain and continue showing hospitality is by understanding the God of hospitality, the God who showed you to the table, the God who brought you in and gave you a ticket to the feast So let's think about that, and let's pray. Father, we pray that we would be people who show hospitality, who don't tire in doing good, who are delighted when others unlike us are invited to the feast. Lord, I pray that we would, as a church, make room for people unlike us, make room for unbelief, have a safe seat for people with doubts, for people with hurts, for people who are unchurched or de-churched, that this would be a hospitable, warm place that they can experience the extravagant love of God. I pray that we would be humble hosts, knowing that we have, ext- we have experienced your extravagant love, that we have received your grace. Lord, we pray as we confess our faith and as we come to the table that you would let us feed upon that extravagant love once again.